following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Everybody loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! My name is Matt Perez, and my name is Satchel Drakes, and this is Overworld, where we try to be curious, fail at being smart, and talk about video games at the intersection of art, society, and other stuff. Hey, Satchel. Hey, Matt. What's Matt going on? Matthew. Stop it. <laughs> Don't do that again. <laughs> I did, like, have a byline in the magazine. I was like, it's not Matthew, it's Matt. <laughs> Wait, are you, like, birth certificate Matt? No, it's Matthew. Oh, come on. That would have been great, though. I just got really lazy in elementary school and just started writing Matt and then MP, and then they made me like do Matt Perez at least. Fair. fair. Yeah, yeah. I like it. So how's it going? I'm doing all right. Yeah. It's like gloomy out. It's extremely gloomy. Yeah. It's a good time to play video games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of happy, though, because I just finished up doing 30 under 30, so I'm like, it's big, um... like... <sighs> relief kind of I'm thing. I'm really excited. I was excited to read through it. I was excited to see all the people on it. I liked that there was sort of game dev representation. I thought oh, that, that was really cool. There we go. There we go. Yeah. But yeah, it's like a thing of like, uh, I, I don't know, when I started when it was like 30 under 30 in games, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like the idea of like entrepreneurs in games, like for some reason that word entrepreneurs did not... It sounds me, weird. It sounds weird where it's like video games, entrepreneur, but it's like, I didn't think like that, but it really, right. I don't know. Um, maybe I'm totally drinking the Kool-Aid, but I really do think that like games, like especially as a field, is like extremely entrepreneurial. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Like, I mean, if you look at like the indie game scene, like all the different avenues and everything, like and it's software. Like yeah. <laughs> there is that. Yeah, you know what I mean. But yeah. it, it is like um, I don't know. I kind of wanted to talk about like the idea of it, like looking at it in that lens of it's a very to me it seems like an accessible field. It's definitely really like a grind and it's difficult to create these games and create content within this um, industry. But are we going to talk about fancy money stuff? Because I didn't bring my suit. <laughs> I didn't bring just a little bit. Just a little bit. Oh, OK. The, the minimal I know. I might be able to follow. OK. <laughs> OK. But no, like um, if you think about like last year, like one of the biggest games was Stardew Valley. Oh, my goodness. It's like my fair game of right. last year. And it dropped on Switch. It did, yeah, it not just did. too long ago. Look I don't that, think so. Look at yeah. that; it's relevant. And yeah. it had that; it had that resurgence. I yeah. just know from the, the timeline. You know, it is like I, I really adore that game. It's amazing. It's like, a cute little Jim Jam, yeah. and I can't believe that's one dude, right? That's that's the thing. It's a one person. I think they um, his name's Eric Barone. Okay, I think that's how you say his last name. Mm. And um, I think he uh, he was looking for like software jobs and stuff, but wasn't was like kind of like striking out after college. And then he spent like I think three years making this game, like seventy hours a week, and mm. he did everything. He did the design, the programming, the art, the music, and the marketing too. Uh, that is commitment, and that's amazing. And yeah. it, and then it's it ends up like sitting next to like these giant AAA games on Steam. Right. You know, and I mean Undertale too, right? Toby exactly. Fox. That was one two years ago. One, yeah. pretty much one person. He did all of that. I think some art. Uh, someone else helped him out a little yeah. bit, but like it is a thing of like he used. Um, I think he used Game Maker, which is an engine, and it's free. Right. And it's it's like, free. Yeah. It's just like he put this thing together. It's like 
I think it actually it's up in my upper echelon of like favorite games of all time. I think it's Fair broken, broken up there. Um, but no, like one person and like you see guitar covers for his songs hit like right. six million views. I know, like the, dude. Literally two years ago was like it was an Undertale season where anything you did, yeah, had to be if related. Undertale was in it, you were getting oh you were God. getting that sweet sweet ad revenue. <laughs> like if you you write about it, there's all these thing pieces on Undertale. There's a million YouTube. The music cover scene on YouTube mm-hmm. was just like. We need to drill these twelve songs into the ground. Yes. Like there was, <laughs> they are catchy melodies, man. <laughs> but no, I mean, again, regarding that, where it's like it's open season, all these YouTubers are just doing videos on it. Right? Remember Slender? Yeah, like that. Slenderman. Yeah. yeah. Like the the thought of like it, that's such a simple game. Right. It's so simple where it's like. I'm just thinking of, like, how you develop it, and it's like you have this one map. You, like, turn off all the lights. Uh, and yeah. have all. I think he used um, free assets for everything, um, and it was a thing of, like, you just mm. collect eight pages, and as you collect more eight pages, it gets a little bit more difficult. That's the game, and yep. it's all about atmosphere and everything, and it just blows up. Like, that's crazy, you know? And all it took was – well, I, don't, I actually don't know who started it. But, I mean, when right. I, the, what comes to mind is Markiplier – Mm-hmm. freaking out right yeah. for you as well we're, we're on the same yeah page. it's like all these youtubers all about it and it's like what yeah, is this yeah. thing and it becomes this like phenomenon yeah, yeah yeah but it's like it's just so strange that like the idea of this industry that's so dominated by like say like a call of duty or a mario or something like that like a, yeah. when, like nintendo's an over a century year old company it's like for like a good like the hype levels are like almost the same yeah and sometimes you exactly. can't you don't even you don't even say like, "Oh, that's cute for like an indie game." It's just like, no, it it's takes just the, the title is the title, and that's yeah. it. Yeah, that's nuts to me. Yeah, but I think, I think it's just like the field itself. Like right now, I guess it's like you have these gigantic AAA billion dollar market cap studios, right. and then the middle tier. There's not as much. There used to be a little bit like more studios there, but it's kind of empty. Mm. But then you have this like burgeoning indie scene that like yeah. continues to like create these games that like totally take the spotlight away from something like yeah that's has millions of dollars behind it you know it's it's funny how similar that is to the film industry as well i remember i was watching a i was watching a talk by j2 plus one half of the two plus brothers mm-hmm. um they did like they're known for the puffy chair but they've done like a bunch of other stuff with, like jonah hill and uh john c Riley. Mm-hmm. yeah and, um, you know, they, they started off indie and they're known for, like, inventing the mobile core genre and all that other stuff. Um, but he was talking about um, what sort of, like, budgeting looks like these days. And that sort of, like, with the golden age of television and all these different shows, amazing, compelling shows getting opportunities through either Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever. Um, there is no middle market anymore. You sort of have blockbusters and then you have, like... Very thoughtful shows, very thoughtful web series. You mm-hmm. get the whole season right away, or very thoughtful TV shows that run serially on cable, and they're kind of that center market isn't really there anymore. I don't mean I don't, I don't know what you'd call that. Is that the straight to DVD market? I don't even know. <laughs> no. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's cool. It's cool. To, I mean, well, not cool, but it's interesting to see how that kind of materializes in games as well, mm-hmm. where someone will just come out of the woodwork with something and it blows up like crazy and shares headlines with games that we've been playing since we were children. Yeah. I think it's, I guess like a lot of that has to do with like games kind of live online more so than other industries. Like if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like 
all the communities are extremely like active and that's where they live. It's like through online forums and stuff. And there's the same thing with like the tools to like make these things, whether it's like if you wanted to be a content creator on YouTube, it's like, okay, YouTube's your platform. It's a matter of like, you know, getting the tools and understanding them and right. making something that's compelling, hopefully. Um, yeah. Not, not everything that trends is compelling, but it is like, <laughs> I think when I started out, like when I try to make some YouTube videos, it's a matter of like, you can use iMovie. That's free. Yeah. You yeah, can yeah. Um, open broadcast software, I think it's called, totally free. And you can just like, you know, stream games or record them uh, on your computer. Uh, and then, you know, as far as like using a mic or something, you can be creative. I used a rock band mic when I started out. You know? like, what's the problem? It actually works. You know? I hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if I feel like there's so many holes in this, but in some ways, almost like the gatekeeping around video games looks different. Yeah. I mean, there isn't really like a movie theater gatekeeping or like even with equipment, like the gatekeeping isn't as high like it would be for making a film. And mm. then... For music, concert venue gatekeeping, which used to be, like, this horrible thing where, like, if you had, like, a band with a bunch of friends, a bunch of my friends had it, where, like, if you made your way onto, like, Warp Tour or something, like, you paid your way there. Or mm-hmm. if you had to go to a venue, you're, like, frantically begging your family to keep buying 20 tickets to yeah. get it. Like, I, I, it's so different when it's just the chief end of what you're doing with a game is just get people to download and play it. And that's really yeah. it. There really is no historically different way yeah. of... We can even, like, go through, like, the entire, like, process of making a game. You could see, like, well, like, at the at the beginning, it's just, like, engines. Like, right. there's, you know, the engine to, like, actually make the game and design it and everything yeah. and program it. There's Game Maker. There's Unity. There's Unreal. Unreal is used to power, like, these blockbuster these games. Legit. They're titles, all free. Yeah. yeah. Like, they, I think... I don't mean I, Unreal might have even taken it away. Yeah. Where they used to like if you sold like a hundred thousand uh, uh, dollars or like you earned a hundred thousand dollars from the equipment, you'd have to pay a licensing fee. But like beyond that, like I don't, they might have even like removed that. But yeah. it is crazy. Like you can download Game Maker right now and start learning it. And that's the other thing is like all the all the tutorials to learn the this equipment is online. Right. It's also a thing of like. You know, they kind of have their own programming languages. I know Game Maker is very simplistic, and it's the, which which is good because I'm not, you know, I'm not like a coder. Mm-hmm. I've picked it up. Uh, I, I, you know, I took some like uh, YouTube tutorials. I think the guy's name is Sean Spalding. Mm. Um, just going through like a few of them. Oh, dude, 100. percent And like, just like you can, I was literally like trying to make a stealth game, where it's like kind of the Metal Gear Solid like cone of vision. And, yeah, like, yeah. I was able to, like, write out, like, hypothesis of, like, how I would do that on a piece of paper. And, like, one of them totally worked with me, like, programming it. I don't know programming languages. It's not Mm. that hard, you know? Like, (laughs) I mean, it's definitely hard, but it's, like, you can dedicate some time to it and, And, like, pick it up. And even then, if you don't and don't want to learn it like me, like, you can can join a small team. And a lot of small teams have done – a lot of small teams have done a lot of successful things as well. From college, when I was in college through really after college, a couple years after – um, I used to do this thing every year called Global Game Jam, and essentially what it is is it's one weekend every year where people here, Japan, all over the world, we lock ourselves into like a designated place that you can find online. So for me, it just happened to be – the reason my team got into it when we did was because one of those places was sort of like this recreational center in, in our, on our college campus. Um, but there's other places, other rec centers that you can go, and you sort of lock yourself away – at a certain point in time on Friday, you're given a word. 
And the moment you're given that word, you have to create a game around that word and present it by Sunday. Oh, that's so awesome. And you all just sort of graph out, like, who does music? Who does design? Who does who does development? And you learn to deal with each other, and, like, you make a thing. And it's always been a really fun and accessible thing and never something outside the possibility of, you know, making sort of, like, your general idea of what it's going to be, like, hyper-reductive thing over that weekend and then deciding, let's just keep building this out into, like, a bigger thing. Time after time, I've had, like, maybe... Of the like the four or five I've been to like two of them people just kept working on it after we were done because you know this thing started flowing you started thinking about different ideas and it kind of grew into something different and it's just sort of like it's almost like you're like one YouTuber let's play away from a compelling product being something <laughs> that everything else can experience. Mm-hmm. I just want to put a thing out there. I realize that you know we're kind of talking about the exciting veneer of like all of this that's going on. If you're kind of in podcast land. And you're like in these circles on Twitter for 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 a while. You probably are thinking to yourself, "Yeah, but isn't it ultimately like a lottery? Like we're kind of talking about all the fluffy stuff, and and that's true. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's difficult. Yeah, we're ta- we're talking about the successes and you know the kind of indie game, the movie approach to it, but it is very challenging. It does require a lot of discipline and um, discipline and discipline. <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's like a, it's hard to and, master. It's hard to like. I think I, the way I was looking at it is like, like every term I'm trying to think of probably doesn't illustrate best like the grind that pro- that totally exists for indie development. Yeah, I guess it's like it's risky, but I guess like the barrier of entry is that that's probably not the the best term. I mean, it could be really because y- you are thinking about okay, I'm gonna invest two years into nonstop building this thing, mm-hmm. maybe three years, and then I'm going to hand it to the world and be like, like this. <laughs> and it's like, where am I going to hand it out? Is it going to get passed around? How do I ensure it's going to be passed around? Like, mm-hmm. what kind of return am I looking for for this? For me, if I'm spending two years on something, I'm looking for a big return. return. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And, and that there are so many games that just go... Nobody, no, it knows, goes nobody sees them. Yeah. You know what I mean, and and that kind of stuff is tough. And the beauty of crowdfunding is that you can sort of make some returns in advance from people who believe in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, like every time I say something optimistic about indie game development, I think about my buddy Kevin Cole, who like he's like this Kickstarter kid. You know what I mean? Where I think his, his first Kickstarter he raised was it ten thousand dollars. It's either ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars, something around there. Mm-hmm. Like definitely five figures to work on this game that is like this cool game. Oh shoot, what's it called? Project Maiden, and it has a cool like mimetic kind of idea where it's sort of like rather than you know typically with platformers you start with zero skills and then at the end you you like gain a whole bunch so that you can fight the bottle, bat, fight fight the boss battle like all powered up and stuff. Mm-hmm. Instead, they give you all the skills in the beginning. And as you keep playing, you lose one, and you learn. How oh, that's to, awesome! You have to learn how to re-strategize so that when you fight the final boss, you're like just a dude. And it's like when I heard that, I was like, "That's so cool!" You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, "Take, yeah, yeah." <laughs> people are gonna give you money. You know what I mean? And like he went through that, and and like and like he built it, and it was like a whole crazy process. I caught him. Like we started talking at the tail end, and the dude was like at the end of himself. He's like oh, the yeah. brightest person I know, mm-hmm. but like it's it's very draining. And then the pressure of putting that out there. Yeah. Uh, of having that funding already, and then you have to like, yeah, all right, time to make this. And the friends and family that are counting on you that funded you, and the whole thing. So it's definitely like this emotionally expensive, oh god, yeah, 
thing. You know, he got back in the game and he's working on another one. But like, mm-hmm. it, it's it's interesting to to see that kind of roller coaster. Yeah, that sort of that's like the I guess that's the weird um, dichotomy I'm looking at is like I think like the tools like if you're going to like say like marketing, it's like okay, like there's YouTube and you can also like create these like. You know, this I know, like, with Stardew Valley, like, he was constantly updating it, and he was building this, like, following that was ready to buy the game when it came out kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like I said, like, all these tools are kind of, like, available at your fingertips, but then it's like, all right, well, to even, like, find success, there's such high risk, and you have to be able to utilize these tools to the best, and, like, even as good as you are, like, that might not be enough. Yeah. So it's like this weird, it's like, yeah, that's, it's, it's a strange, tough field. Yeah. But it, it's also like inspiring. Cause you're like, yeah, but it's right. There. It's right like, there. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> that's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you want to talk to somebody about this? Yeah, I, I, I think I would. I'd like to talk to, I want to talk to somebody seasoned. Mm-hmm. An authority. So an, an authority. Someone who's, who's done some, done some ish. You Sweet. Know? Okay. Well, we're going to talk to Mike Wilson. He is the <sighs> co-founder of Devolver Digital. They did Hotline Miami. They've done everything. They've done Hotline Miami, did Shadow you... Warrior, Reigns, Enter the Gungeon, The Talos Principle, Dropsy. Ali Ali. Ali Ali. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let's talk to this person. Yeah. Please. He also co-founded uh, Good Shepherd Entertainment, which is a new means of, you know, helping out any developers. And, you know, there's constantly new innovations of, like, how you get your game funded or marketed whether it's kickstarter fig early access on steam this is kind of like a new new maybe new way of doing things so yeah let's get his uh take on this and we'll be right back after this quick break overworld is brought to you by lifelock is your personal info for sale on the dark web monitoring your credit can't show you but lifelock sees a wide range of threats to your identity If something happens, U.S.-based specialists can work to fix it. Go to lifelock.com, use promo code Forbes, and save 10%. So with us now is Mike Wilson. He's the co-founder of Devolver Digital as well as Good Shepherd Entertainment. Thanks for uh, talking with us, Mike. Yeah, glad to be here. Awesome. So um, just off the bat, kind of a general question. Can you kind of characterize, like, the independent game scene, like, as of right now? Do you think it's accessible do you think there's a lot of opportunities or at the very least you can kind of make your own opportunities and do you see it being more robust in the next few years uh wow the the, predicting the future is always a tough one but uh, (laughs) right now you know certainly the developers we're working with um we're having a lot of success with both of these companies um pretty consistently even you know for me as a I've been an entrepreneur all my life, uh, even before I got into games, which I've been in games for 24 years now or something. So it's been a minute. Um, I think these are the best times uh, for independent game developers, honestly, um, mostly because of Steam and other digital platforms where you don't, you know, you just don't have to deal with all the the hassle that we used to deal with getting into retail and this this whole renaissance of indie games where really small teams can make something you know that reaches a worldwide audience um so i i think it's a great time to be in it's you know it's not without its challenges certainly trying to break through the noise um is a huge one which is why i think a lot of indies are getting back to working with publishers when they can 
Um, but as long as you stay small, I think, and, and really look for a specific audience instead of aiming for the mainstream, um, it's a, it's, it's a great business. That's cool. I, I have a little bit of a more granular follow-up question and it's, it's kind of about, um, the venues from which people are kind of purchasing like independent games or where you might feel like you want to put your games up. Uh, typically when I see discussions, on the internet, maybe Twitter or whatever, about sort of independent games and sort of having an opportunity for people to see what you're what you're making, what you've been working on for one plus years. Um, there tends to be a lot of conversation around the storefront, around those venues, like for example, Steam, like App Store, the like, right? And it often kind of, it often tends to revolve around the bureaucracy around like what kind of makes it a storefront and how you get priority and things like that. I'm curious to know, like in your experience. How heavy is that sort of uh, iron grip on um, people distributing uh, their games? You know what I mean? It, it often feels like that's like, oh, if we solve this one thing, that is the end of the conversation. Does it actually feel that way from somebody who's sort of uh, has skin in the game, someone who's sort of like had to had to take risks themselves? I mean, certainly on the uh, the app store, it's pretty tough if you don't get it you know, at least a, a chance with a feature when you launch. Um, it's just really hard to get discovered because there's so much noise on there. With Steam, whether you're with a publisher or not, what I love about those guys is the big the big companies can't buy the front page. It's all merit-based. And so wow. everything is a chance on Steam. And they'll give you a certain amount of impressions when you launch. And if you don't, get any traction, it doesn't matter who you are, it's not going to stay on the front page. Um, and so then it's up to you to come up with ways to improve your game or to do updates to give it another chance, another beat, you know, when you when you launch. Because one, certainly with the amount of games that are out there now, if you don't have a really specific audience that you're communicating with, um, it's tough once you're, once you're out of the sort of featured areas. I had no idea. That's that's yeah. really interesting to hear. Yeah, well, it makes sense when it's like last year. I think like Stardew Valley was like one of the biggest games on Steam, next to all these like big AAA developers. And it's, I guess it's because it's merit based, and people want to know more and play more. Some hours, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I see it in my timeline. Yeah, so. honestly, Steam is Steam is really. I mean, they're the key to this whole indie revival we've had. Without those guys, I'm not sure we would still be in the business. Um, and it's because they're a small private company, you know, that um, were started by started by game developers, and they it's very democratized. And you know, it's it's a very unique situation when the big companies can't just buy you out of their way. Um, and I think that's only because they're a private company and they don't have the same pressures that a public company would have to keep growing their revenue. Right. And they're just sitting there quietly making 30% of the whole industry. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, Nobody cares. Nobody minds that they have a virtual monopoly because they're good guys, you know, and they're just, they're not taking advantage of that. They're not, you know, gouging. Uh, and they, are, they still are giving indies the same chance that a game from EA would get. You know, as far as what they can control, um, the rest of the things that brings people to that page is not really in their control. But honestly, a huge part of our job as publishers is, you know, what happens after that launch and uh, sort of guiding the product through um, through its life cycle, which is really different depending on which type of game it is. But um, I think 
of why uh, a lot of indies, if they're given the opportunity, are coming back to working with an indie publisher. Um, because, you know, people need to get on with their lives and go make the next game or just deal with bug fixes and things like that. And trying to manage your game through the life cycle and put it on sale every chance there is and all of these things. Um, it's just a lot for an independent game developer to take it all on themselves. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, so I guess like right now, like, the landscape as far as, like, funding your game and earning revenue is, like, there's crowdfunding, which is off and on, and, um, you know, then beyond that, there's not, like, I guess there's Devolver Digital and things like that. Can you talk about, um, I guess, the different challenges uh, in that regard, and also, I guess, like, talk a little bit about Good Shepherd Entertainment? Sure. Um, I mean, it's not just our labels. There are several indie game publishers that are sort of modeled after Devolver's success, um, and what's great about that is they kind of had a, have to match our terms, which are very, very artist-friendly terms. And we're super proud to have sort of started that um, that renaissance with what a publisher is, because it having a publisher used to be a very heavy-handed thing, you know, because they were they were funding your game, and that often meant you're giving up control. A lot of times you're giving up IP rights and just not getting a very good deal, you know, because, you know, he who has the gold <laughs> makes the rules. Fair. The gold rule. Yeah. Um, and we just have always, you know, we, we've actually had several companies before Devolver, two, well, two publishing companies before Devolver together back in the retail days. And, and we've always operated the same way with the basic premise that what a publisher does is not as important as what a developer does. And so we kind of just check our egos and give developers um, full control over everything, creative control over everything, including the marketing, um, because we, we happen to believe creators are know their audience pretty well, and, and we, we give uh, you know we give suggestions when asked, but all of the decisions in our business uh, come down to the developers at the end. And after a while, that, that sort of breeds trust, and they just let us do what we do, and we let them do what they do and help each other where we can. Um, so we, we fund games, um, not usually from uh, initial concept. We've got, gotten kind of spoiled to the fact that um, almost every pitch we get now is already a playable demo, hmm. which is great for us um, to feel more confident taking risk on really weird projects. Um, that it would be hard to imagine without being able to play it. And from the developer side, it's you know it's wonderful that all of these tools exist now that you can use for free. Um, it's just it was not very long ago at all that you know just to get a game engine was a half a million dollar prospect. Wow. Um, and now the the fact that you can just start with Unity or Unreal for free and then you know pay them something later if you're uh, release a commercial game is really a game changer. That's a terrible term, but, <laughs> but it, it really is. We'll uh, cut around it. We'll cut around. It. <laughs> and it's really brought the uh, opportunity to be to create games to a much wider range of creators. It's because traditionally it's always been that you know sort of prototypical uh, uh, tech savvy early adopter white male to be honest is who's been developing games for the mm. first 30 years of it and that's honestly why a lot of the co content has been sort of derivative you know it's been the same few genres for a long time 
And I think now that the tools are becoming ubiquitous, um, you're getting a lot more uh, unique voices in game development and, you know, telling stories in different ways and new mechanics that wouldn't have been imagined by the same people that have been doing it all along. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really cool time. Again, we, we, we fund stuff that we already can play, which is amazing for us. And it's amazing for developers to be able to get something at that point without having to come and ask for a ton of money. Because that's, that's really when you end up giving up so much is when you just have an idea and you don't have a, a team, you know, and a, a place to start. And now that you can, now that a team can be, you know, a lot of our most successful games come from teams of three or less people. Mm. And, uh, and that's, that's pretty magical compared to just five or ten years ago. Yeah. That's kind of uh, with uh, Hotline Miami. Was that how that came about? There was like a yeah. team of two, and uh... yeah, two people, and then um, one of our other most successful games, uh, Enter the Gungeon, is made by three guys. And then uh, you know we've had hits made from one one developer, like Downwell and uh, Reigns. Oh, Downwell was so amazing. I love Reigns. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> both made by one person. Um, That's crazy. You know, with you know maybe some contract music help here and there or whatever, but yeah, um, it's like I said, that's that just wasn't possible not very long ago. Yeah, and again, because these teams are small and their budgets are small, they don't need it to make a mainstream household name hit to do well. You know, these guys, all the people we mentioned, are have done very very well for themselves, and. Uh, and they've stayed small. They're not trying to build an empire. They just want to keep doing it. Right. And, uh, and Devolver's the same. You know, we still don't have an office, and we're still just a few people scattered around the globe. And we keep the overhead low, just like those guys, so that we can keep taking chances on really weird projects. Um, and, and and just know that you know it's highly even Hotline Miami is not really a household name outside of the core audience. Um, so that's our world that we swim in and, and it's, uh, it's comfortable in there. <laughs> it's not, uh, shooting for the mainstream is just, you, you know, you're going up against these massive, massive marketing budgets and, and, uh, it's just not really viable. And I think that's what we used to have to do is try to compete with that. And now it's more like find your niche and, and really go after that audience and communicate directly with them. And just know that you're, you know, that's going to be your audience, and keep it small. Um, and then what? <laughs> what's cool for us is because we're able to play these games before, you know, we invest in them. We can also it removes a lot of the risk from us, so we can offer really, really great deals to the developers. Like all of all of our deals, the developers make more than we do on the games. Um, which I think is fair because it's their creation and we're just sort of helping them get to the finish line and then doing the marketing and support from there. Um, and then as far as Good Shepherd, it is modeled almost exactly like Devolver. The only difference is um, Devolver uh, funds all of our games just out of our own cash flow. And Good Shepherd is opening that up you know, we'll sign a game and we commit all the money just like Devolver does. But after that, we go take a portion of that out to a network of private investors and invite them in to try to give them a good positive first game investment experience. 
And uh, that will allow us to green light more and more games and sort of scale the business a little bit bigger than Devolver. Yeah. So that's kind of like, um, I guess you, you, a comparison might be like a VC fund almost, where it's like a group of investors that can um, come in and help out um, a developer and provide funds. Um, kind of. I mean, we, we are still mainly a publishing company, mm-hmm. and it's about the same size team as Devolver has, only we have a few people on our team that are just dedicated to dealing with investors. And so we do all the same stuff that any independent publisher does, but on the side, we also are building this investor network of uh, just individuals, accredited investors. Um, we don't do public-facing raises like uh, like Fig does or Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, just deal with people that can afford to put in a few grand and, you know, are not going to be ruined if they lose it. It um, sounds like, uh, like that could like, I, I feel like it's like a good idea. <laughs> like, and it could, uh, yeah. it, it, like if that trends, you know, like we've had like Kickstarter trend and there's fig, this seems like uh, a nice balance between, you know, an independent publisher and what we're used to with like crowdfunding and stuff. Yeah. We started off that we were going to be a, um, like Fig, that was the original plan, and then we were like, "Well, we really need to be a publisher to be able to um, protect these investors and our investment." You know, because that's the cool thing is our games, and I think it's why it's working. We invest alongside these investors at the same terms they get, and Devolver also invests in the Good Shepherd games just to say, "Hey, guys, we believe in this, and we're in at the same terms you get," and so we're all in it together. We're you know, so even when a game isn't great or isn't a big, isn't a hit right out of the gate, you know, you can count on the fact that we're working really hard to make uh, the money back and as quickly as possible, so that these uh, new investors have a good experience and they come back. And it's been working, you know. And, and Good Shepherd hasn't really had a, a bunch of hits. We've been working with a lot of first-time developers, um, the guys who need it the most, you know, that don't have a lot of uh, opportunity to work with a professional publisher because they're new uh, or they're going to get taken advantage of because they're new. And so that's really where we wanted to prove that this could work and and that it can work without counting on something to be a hit. And it's it's we've been doing pretty great. I mean, we the returns, like if you've invested in all of our games, again, with really none of them, I guess transport fever is a hit, you know, financially, but it's not like didn't blow the doors off. Um, but if all of them, including our worst performing games, if you had invested in all of them, they're returning 130% already with still a couple of years to go of, of royalties. So that's great compared to, you know, investing in any fund that's out there. So that that's kind of the, what, what we were trying to get at. And now we've sort of beefed up the company this year. We changed the name from Gambitious to Good Shepherd. We beefed up the team with some more experienced people. And so it should just get better from here. You know, hopefully we'll start to get um, better and better projects and hopefully get that sort of Devolver-like track record going in the next year or two. That's pretty cool. I, I, I really kind of appreciate that model a lot more than i mean like most people when kickstarter was kind of first out mm-hmm. i've just invested in so many things that did not go the whole way through and <laughs> yeah. and we knew that would happen you know, because we we do this for a living and we were like Shoot, these people are just getting all the money up front and there's no real responsibility yeah and it's not that these are bad people 
I don't care who it is or what you're working on. If you give them all the money up front and nobody managing milestones or budgets, then it, the money's going to go away. They're going to run out. Yeah. Or, uh, or for most of us, they had a really awesome product video <laughs> <laughs> and just not the team to follow through. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we, we knew that that would be a sort of a gold rush that wouldn't work out for most people. Um, yeah. And again, not, not that anybody was trying to mislead anybody. That's just the way these projects go. Yeah. You need somebody monitoring each milestone before they give them more money and just helping, you know, with the experience. Um, you know, as much as we defer to developers, we, we have worked on over 100 games together over the years, and we do have some <laughs> experience that's useful for indies because all of those projects have been with indies. Right. So um, it's it's helpful, you know. It's a different area of expertise, but um, that's why I'm, I'm still a partner and involver and active in it, but I'm really focused on building Good Shepherd because I think it can, it can actually benefit a lot more developers in the long run. That's really cool. This is the first time I've seen, like, I don't know, I guess just, like, an entity like that. Because, I mean, Highline Mammy meant a lot to me a couple years ago. Like, to see an entity like that scale differently than what I'm familiar with seeing. I I really like your point about, I guess, like, focusing on small teams and letting them sort of hold the rest of the industry accountable. I think a lot about, like, modality, sodality, like, the movement informing the industry and letting, like, new ideas that could only be birthed with high risk and, and small teams sort of like ripple out and change the way we sort of play everything, albeit like over a longer period of time, but still nonetheless. So I, yeah. I think that's really cool. I mean, most of the big franchises that we enjoy now came from an indie team at one time, you know. Um, and I, I started off, I was super lucky. I got to start off at id Software when they were small. And saw them, you know, totally change the world with Wolfenstein and Doom and Quake, and uh, and now they're this massive company, you know, that just put out another great. I mean, no, none of the original guys are there except I think two of the people that were there when I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they're this massive company inside Bethesda, and they just put out this huge, great Doom. Um, but I don't know that they're having much fun. <laughs> <laughs> For real, it's it's a different world working on giant games, you know, and you can only feel so much ownership when you're part of a 250-person team. That's fair. I mean, it's great that you're working on something that everybody in the world is going to hear about, but it's not really, like, it's pretty hard to feel like it's your game, I think. Yeah, I hear that. I just want to ask, like, one more question. Because uh, mm-hmm. you, uh, I, like, I guess, like, a comparison, I think people have made comparisons with Devolver Digital with, like, Sub Pop. Um, and yeah, that's yeah, so oh, that's so dope. Yeah, and I guess <laughs> like another yeah, and another one could be like um, Bloomhouse, um, which like you know they'll fund all these smaller horror movies like Get Out and then Get Out yeah. explodes kind of thing. Like so, you have a background in uh, in uh, filmmaking, right? Uh, yeah, I, I it's funny. So at the point when games were rushing to get big, you know, <laughs> uh, there was this new revolution and. In indie filmmaking, where suddenly very small teams could could make a, a totally viable feature film, you know, in their mm. bedroom, and so I sort of started dabbling in that just because I really enjoy the small team <clears throat> vibe, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, and it was just for me, it was because I'm not a game developer, right? I'm only on the business side of that, and I like to think I get to be creative with that, but still, I'm not the one making the games. So, so I started 
working in film as a filmmaker so that I could, you know, get my creative juices on and, and remind myself of what it's like to be that creator, you know, taking your, your little baby out to the world and, you know, (laughs) yeah. So I've enjoyed that. I've made a couple of features and a few, uh, several shorts over the years. And, uh, I don't know if I'll make another one or not, but it's, it's been a really fun, uh, education, you know, and, and a can reminder. We just, can of, we just uh, Google these? What's that? Can we just yeah. Google these? I'm fit to Google them. <laughs> you want to Google my movies? Yeah. yeah. I made yeah. Uh, the first real Burning Man documentary that came out about 10 years ago. It's called Burning Man Beyond Black Rock. And it's, uh, I made it free on Steam as of last year oh, for its no. 10th anniversary. Um, and then the other one was a stoner comedy that I'm actually in called Austin High. Solid. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, like, how is uh, how is indie filmmaking compared to like uh, indie game making? Uh, it's it's similar in in a lot of ways, but it's also just the way films come together is different. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's um, it starts off with a few people, and then you ramp up to you know a big casting crew for the time you're shooting, which in indie land is usually under a month, and. Uh, and then it's back down to the, you know a couple of people to finish the thing and to try to get it out there. So it's it's tough in a different way. And uh, the proliferation of Netflix and all the best TV in the world, you know, being dumped on us right now, has really made it tough for indie filmmakers to make a buck. And that's that's sort of why uh, Devolver became an indie film distributor as well, because um, we knew Steam was going to start putting movies out. And we wanted to be the first uh, indie film distributor on Steam, and we we did that. Um, but still, under I think under ten percent of people on Steam have ever noticed that there's movies on there still. <laughs> and a lot of those that's people... fair. I like noticed for indie game the movie, but even then, my mind sequestered it off as like, oh well, it's just because it's like a video game thing. It's just here. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't know there was and, a section. And that was like an an executable. That was before Steam had built. Uh, their own streaming player, which they have now, and it's actually a really good player. And honestly, as as small a business as it is on Steam, it's still our our indie films do better on Steam already than they do on iTunes or Amazon. Right. Um, that's probably just for you know a lack. It doesn't have as much competition on there, and the customers. The reason we thought Steam could be great for indie film is, you know, there are customers that are used to finding really weird things and sharing them with each other, and there's a community on it. True. And so I think if that number, is that number climbs up, you know, to maybe 20, 25% of people on Steam are messing with movies, then it could be a really important platform for filmmakers still. But right now, it's it's real tough times out there, Um, again, mostly because of of Netflix and just this avalanche of the best TV ever made yeah. you know, that we can watch and binge watch. And uh, I think that's actually affecting game sales as well uh, adversely because people only have so much time, you know, and every time a new series gets dumped on you, there goes 20 hours, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> but, but uh, it's fun. I still, you know, the thing about making those films is I, you end up building a community with each cast and crew that it's just such a bitch. <laughs> it's so hard <laughs> that you'll, it's like going through basic training together or something like you never forget 
who was there with you during that 30. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's completely changed my life. Like I have a huge chunk of my uh, my life that is friendships and, uh, and just professional relationships that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't made those movies. Yeah. So when I think about making another one, that's really what I think about is just doing it for the experience. Mm-hmm. That's right. You're you, so you're gonna do it. <laughs> I'm just shifting the conversation. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Am I making another movie? Yeah. Uh, I don't plan to right now. <laughs> um, but if somebody, yeah, if 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 the funding were there, um, I would do it, which is kind of how the last one happened. I, I threw out the idea for Austin High as a joke in front of a new friend, and he was like, let's do it. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? As he it said, typically goes, that's great. Yeah, he said, "Let's start a production company and make this thing." And I was like, "Well, I have a production company," and he said, "Well, I have a lot of fucking money." <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. yeah. So that that film was uh, concepted and greenlit in about thirty minutes. Right on. Which never ever happens. <laughs> right <laughs> on. It's usually going around begging for money for a year or two to to find cobble together some budget to make one of those things um so yeah if, if i have another gung-ho rich guy that wants to throw some money in, <laughs> i'll probably do it for the fun of it but and that's really how that whole industry exists is i don't think anybody invests really expecting money back like if they are they're they're kidding themselves um every now and then you get your get out situation but that's like you know one in 500 and uh, um, it's mostly because people just like movies and want to say they're working on a movie or that they help make a movie. Mm. So you, you get more more like benefactors than investors. Thanks so much uh, for talking to us, Mike. Yeah, no problem. Um, let me know what you think of the movies. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Definitely. For sure, I will. I'll holler at you on Twitter, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> We're both on Steam. Um, right one on. is free and the other one's probably 99 cents or something. So. <laughs> Solid price. Okay. Yeah. Cool, man. Thanks yeah. so much for talking with us. It's been great. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it. Um, thanks for asking. And uh, feel free to reach out anytime. Awesome. Right, cool. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Take care. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Shopping online has its pluses, but also comes with risks. With the holidays fast approaching, here are some tips to help keep your identity and financial information safe. Always use a secure internet connection rather than vulnerable hotspots. Shop on sites with secure payment methods like credit cards or gift cards. Create strong passwords. Be wary of deals that are too good to be true. And finally, avoid phony shopping apps. Identity fraud cost Americans $16 billion in 2016. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect. Thieves could sell your information on the dark web or get an online payday loan in your name. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats. If they detect your information, they'll send you an alert. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code FORBES, that's FORBES, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined? (laughs) 
rugged at the same time. Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium and lead gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. Up next, Paul and Eric talk the latest video game controversy as EA Star Wars Battlefront 2 faces gamer backlash over its divisive loot crates. Hi, I'm Eric Kane. I'm Paul Tassi. Today we are going to talk about Star Wars Battlefront 2, which has been dominating the headlines, really in the video game news in general for the last three or four days, I'd say. Uh, And probably will be for... I mean, the foreseeable future, I guess. Yeah, it seems like it, because they're going to keep changing things, and people are going to keep getting mad about other things, and <laughs> we'll see where, where it goes from here. Yeah, it's kind of a it's just a mess. Um, so, I don't know, do you want to kind of talk about what, what's going on? Yeah, so to recap the problem, or I guess the kind of cluster of problems, um, you know, there's there's loot boxes in kind of every game now, and loot boxes are things that you buy that give you kind of a random assortment of items. Uh, that you can pay above and beyond the $60 price of a game. And usually in a game like Overwatch, you'll get skins or kind of voice lines for your characters. Um, other games have kind of pushed pushed the line a little more, like Shadow of War got in trouble because it was offering kind of powerful uh, weapons and, and orcs to be used in its single-player game. Uh, but now Battlefront 2 has kind of taken the ultimate step forward where... It not only has loot boxes, and it not only sells kind of unbalanced, powerful items in the loot boxes, but it has essentially built the entire core of the progression system around getting loot boxes. So in a traditional shooter, you would play a class, level up perks with a class, play with a gun, level up that gun and get more attachments. In this game, you play and you get credits, and then you buy loot boxes with the credits, and then you hope that the items that drop are useful for whatever character you like or currently want to play. And then add on the fact that you can buy these loot boxes and it's turned into this kind of giant firestorm that does not seem to have an end in sight. (laughs) Yeah, it's... I've spent the last few days both playing the early access version of the game and reading about it and trying to write about it, and I still find the progression system incredibly complicated and confusing. Yeah. Uh, that's what I heard described was I think Dave called it Byzantine, where it's just like <laughs> Sphinx riddle to try and figure out what yeah. exactly you're upgrading and like what are the right currencies and like what you should be investing in. Like it's just so complicated. Yeah, I mean in a game like Overwatch, you know, you're mostly getting skins or emotes or things like that. So it's very obvious what you have and what you don't have. And it doesn't level up your character. You don't level up your characters in Overwatch. You just get cool looking skins and you know there's a whole problem with loot boxes still being kind of like a gambling thing we've talked about that before but at least there you know you kind of can see very obviously what you're getting or uh, like in call of duty you know as you level up it's very obvious what you're getting as you level up you're unlocking you know different weapons you're you're and in the loot boxes you're just getting cosmetics uh and and xp boosts and things like that but here, boy, it's just hard to know what's going on. And that's sort of, you know, it's sort of weird in a way because these sorts of loot boxes are, and, and the progression systems are supposed to give you a sense of satisfaction as you, as you sort of increase your collection. But here it just feels like you don't even have that. 
which is which is sort of it's sort of confusing that they would, they would be this way. Yeah, you're kind of like hanging on by your fingernails just to keep up with the people who have like better upgrades than you, rather than like, oh, I'm building out my character. Oh, I'm amassing this collection of items. It just it doesn't feel like that. And then combined with I guess the more recent controversy was that everything costs so much. So yeah. like to unlock a new hero. As of two days ago, it was something about 40 hours of, of gameplay time, and then that became its own firestorm, and then EA stepped in and cut that price by, I think, 75%, so it's still 10 hours of gameplay to unlock a hero or something, and, you know, core heroes to the game, like Vader and Luke Skywalker, like, really yeah. important people, and yeah. I just, like, none of this just seems fun, and I think that EA and DICE have kind of lost sight of that, where it that's that needs to be the core of what keeps people coming back. And if you if even if gameplay is fine, if your entire progression system is just a mess, that really hamstrings the rest of the game. And I think that's what's been coming out in these early reviews. Yeah, yeah, fun is a really important factor in a video game. <laughs> I mean, that's, you, there you are a lot of that. considerations, but fun is right up there at the top. Um, I think you know, with the heroes getting cheaper, I, I feel like that became the focus for a while. And I wrote about this, but. I really think that still the bigger problem than heroes was just the fact that certain star cards give you such advantages. Um, I know some like help with aim assist and things like that. And, and it's if crazy. you can pay it's for just, that. Yeah, you know. it's, it's flat stat increases in, in a yeah. genre that that's been such a no-no for some time. And it's not even like, oh, these publishers don't want to go there. Like it just breaks your game. That's why it's not in other yeah. games. Like you can't have something that gives your star – fighter or like your bomber like 40 percent extra health that's that's just insane and like you can't have that and maintain any semblance of balance so the problem with all of this is like they can adjust prices and this and that move things up and down and you know whatever but the the core system is broken and i don't know how you can fix that without just scrapping the whole loot box idea and starting over and just like er- erasing the progression system and then like maybe reintroducing loot boxes later as cosmetics or something. And that's what, that's my idea. I mean, and I think cause cosmetics are the way to go. And I know it's difficult working with Disney on that. You know, Lucasfilm has very strict standards of what the visual uh, components of this game have to be. Um, and you know, we read in like that visceral article that it could take months to come up with one character design. But that being said, that's the only way to keep this game from being an un- Well, I totally think that's part of it, mess. but I also I, I read an answer today where the, the dev was talking about how they do have they are working on a customization system for like yeah. cosmetics, but mm-hmm. it wasn't ready for launch, and like that could have been the whole core of loot boxes, and they could have avoided all of this oh, just with that. So and better. I think those still really would have sold well. That's the thing is like I think they would have done really well with that kind of oh, thing, yeah. but. Either you know, they didn't have time to implement it, or they really just thought this monetization path was better. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it. Like with Star Wars, the the possibility of just cool skins is pretty much endless. Like you could have, you know, your base like Luke Skywalker hero, but then you could like, you know, get a loot box that had like old Luke Skywalker from the new movies as a skin. You know, people would totally eat that up. And and same with like just stormtroopers. You could have your base stormtrooper, but then you could have like. You know, skins that are are just different looking stormtroopers, and I, th- I think that that would be a, a hugely profitable system, and it wouldn't affect the game. Uh, it still doesn't, you know. I mean, I still would think we have that whole question of like, are loot boxes gambling? Are loot boxes ethical? Uh, or you know, especially in a game where a lot of kids will be playing. But at least it would avoid this. I mean, this is the biggest firestorm 
in in games that I can remember for a really long time. Uh, yeah, it's been a while since we've had a real barn burner, and like we have loot box controversies kind of once a month at least. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. this this one has kind of been outside the norm, and like I, I touched on this in an article I wrote the other day, but this is really kind of an EA specific thing where. Yeah, some companies are pushing the lines in, in here and there. And like Call of Duty had like, oh, it's tacky to airdrop loot boxes onto the beaches of Normandy and tell people to like yeah. spectate openings. But fundamentally, their loot boxes are not severely altering how their games play or how progress is made in their games. Whereas EA, EA has done this in Battlefront, and to a less publicized ascent, um, extent, they've, they've done this in the new Need for Speed game, which came out a few days ago and got buried in reviews because they replaced the entire racing system with race cars get parts for money to a star card system of randomized drops for upgrades to move forward and it's this is a, a turning point where in pursuit of like loot box cash you are actively making your game worse which is yeah. just kind of madness and like it might work like again we are somewhat of an echo chamber in this you know <laughs> Twitter and Reddit, yeah. people yelling about things. So if it if it sells, I guess it doesn't matter. But you know, we are also living in a day in a, a day and age where people are getting bonuses for eighty five Metacritic scores, and like these things are important, like critic reaction, fan reaction. So I, I don't think it's insignificant either. No, um, and right now, uh, let's see, Star Wars Battlefront two on Metacritic on PS four is actually getting a seventy seven. Which I find surprisingly high. The Xbox One one was um, lower. It's like a seventy-three. Open Critic, it's like seventy-five. But like seventy-five for a triple-A huge game like that is not yeah. great. Like I know it's not yeah, review scores no. are screwed up and whatever, but like they were. That's like at least ten points below what they wanted to see easily. <laughs> it's it's interesting that so many places are giving the game a a pretty good score, especially a lot of smaller websites that I've never heard of. <laughs> there, like there's Area a lot of those. Sony. <laughs> got this covered like a lot of and then if you get down into more uh established places you know you're you're seeing lower scores yeah i feel like some of them might know better well i I read an article about this the other day where it was like it's getting kind of hard to review games like this because i don't know i don't know exactly what review conditions were for this i don't think any of us got early copies some people just were playing early access some people went to review event but like prices changed as of yesterday <laughs> right. for the grind, and I don't know if some people at a review event had a lot of stuff unlocked already, or were given a bunch of cash to buy stuff more easily, just so like oh you can get a, a you can see the variety of things you can use, and that like that definitely would affect you know the gameplay. Like if you if it takes mm-hmm. you two hours to unlock stuff versus twenty hours, I can see how you might end up getting a high, giving it a higher score, and I don't even know if that's on the reviewers. I think that's on. You know, EA kind of setting this up to be tricky. <laughs> you know, it's so complicated because, you know, I, I was invited to the review event by EA for this. And a lot of people went to that event. And, uh, you know, at the event itself, there the, the prices were different. You know, we know this for a fact that prices for credits to unlock things were lower than they than they were for the mainstream. And, and for all we know, and I don't know all the details on this, but, you know, the rewards may have been higher also. Uh, and and it, with higher rewards and lower credits, you know, you're going to have a better time with this game. And then also, you know, in that sort of sort of cloistered review event uh, environment, there's a lot of pressure to, you know, review it better than you normally would. There's, 
you know, it's going to run really well because it's all based on land rather than, you know, the, the, the servers, the public servers. Uh, there's just so many factors involved that can muddy up the review scores. And I think that's why, yeah, we are seeing places like Game Informer and US Gamer and all these giving lower scores because they're a little bit more established. They kind of know what's going on a little bit more. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's just such a weird thing. It's so, so terrible to have what could be a perfectly good game ruined by its monetization. You know? It's just very, it's very depressing. Yeah, and it, it, <laughs> this is a kind of unique case. I mean, we complain about monetization and stuff a lot, but this, this is the most severe case I think I can remember. I mean, granted, you know, the, maybe the core game isn't like a 10 out of 10 if, if the progression system was totally different. I mean, I think sure. it still has some issues. But, I mean, literally no one is talking about anything else. <laughs> like, this is, this is the entirety of the conversation, more or less, is, is yeah. about this. And... In, in some cases, I'd say, oh, people are making too big of a deal out of this one thing, like maybe in, in the past with some other loot boxes, but that's not true here because it is the cornerstone of a huge chunk of the game, <laughs> and so there, there's really no way around it. So when you, when you integrate it into the system like this, you you physically cannot avoid the loot box you know, racket, so it, it has to become a point of conversation. Yeah, I I think you know it's really interesting when you when you look up the definition of pay to win. You you get the Wikipedia article and it talks about how it it's basically part of the the free to play Wikipedia article. That's where you find it, and that's the thing. This kind of system is pretty much designed around free to play games, and even within the free to play gaming space, pay to win is frowned upon. It's accepted because the game is free, and there's a lot more of it in that space. But, you know, still, the best free-to-play games try their hardest to avoid any sort of pay-to-win scheme. And here we have a $60 game with with this scheme in place very, very blatantly. There's also a difference, too, I think, between how a lot of mobile games use this and how Battlefront has, is potentially using this, where, say, you have a game like Clash of Clans or Clash Royale, where you can pay just a crap ton of money to do everything faster, get more units faster, get all the upgrades faster, whatever, and you kind of, that will let you crush people at lower levels, but eventually you're going to run into a ceiling where you are also against people who have just dumped a a ton of money into the game, and you're constantly fighting at that level. Whereas here, with Battlefront, I I feel like the people who are getting these legendary star cards quicker, unless EA has some super advanced matchmaking system, I think they're just going to be running wild, kind of crushing people, who don't have the upgrades. I don't think that it, it's not like there's a ladder, you know, there's not ranked play in this. Like this is one of the most casual, it, at least it was one of the most casual shooters on the market, essentially. And it's just kind of a pick up and play thing. But if you start dumping a bunch of people into the game that have, you know, 30% damage, 20% fire rate increases, and nobody else has those in a given moment, it's going to just wreck everything. Yeah, I was playing Galactic Assault and not doing great because I just have not found any rhythm in this game at all. Uh, but I I remember I, I loaded up, you know, partway through the match, all of a sudden there was a Luke Skywalker on the other team and he was just destroying everybody, you know? And, and you can even tell because if, if you get killed, it shows the star cards the other person has. Yeah. And, like, I guess that's supposed to be make you want – it's the whole, like – show them what, what they have and they'll want it to kind of thing. But I think it just makes people mad <laughs> more than anything. 
rather than yeah, encur- encouraging it's, it's, purchases. It's very frustrating. I, I felt very uh, turned off to that to the game after that. After I mean, it was just like it just felt so completely unfair, you know. <laughs> Like, I'm not very good anyways. I think probably if I had a Luke Skywalker, I wouldn't roll over the other team. But if you combine, like, someone who's decent at the game with, uh, you know, these purchases and, and they have more characters, more star cards, they're, they're going to just be better. And it's it's really, it's a, it's not fun. <laughs> it's just Yeah, not well, fun. I mean, like, sk- like, base skill plus star card upgrades plus the system now where, like, the more points you earn, the faster you get hero unlocks in the game. Yeah. And the more combine all of those things, it's a recipe for like a couple people to just murder everybody. (laughs) Because I mean, heroes are overpowered at base. That's like the point of heroes, and like that can work. That used to work better, I think, in Battlefront One, where kind of anyone, any random person could pick up a hero. But now it is tied to like kind of score and credits earned in game, and obviously the people that are better, or at least have better upgrades and are killing people more, are going to earn those faster. And it's like the spiral. To the point where you're just going to get this like unholy terror of a Darth Maul or a Boba Fett or something just right. ruining everyone. Well, it's like – so the other games have this problem but only half of this problem. Like take Call of Duty. Um, players who are really good are going to have higher score streaks and they're going, to have, they're going to be able to unleash these score streaks against the other team, which can take an uneven match and make it more uneven, right? Like I really wish there was a mode in Call of Duty that did the opposite, where like it had the Mario Kart approach, <laughs> where instead of like the good players getting score streaks, like doing poorly gave you a score streak, you know, so that you get like your bullet bill, so you can catch up a little bit. I think that would be a great mode to sort of like, you know, it would, it would, it would. I, w- I don't want to say it would punish better players. I think it would give better players a, a more of a challenge, and it would give worse players more of a leg up. But in, in Battlefront, not only do you get this, where the best players are getting to use their most powerful heroes, but you also give them the advantage of, of microtransactions that make that easier for them. Um, I, I played, yesterday I played, well, I was waiting for this to install, or maybe it was the day before. Um, I fired up on this Xbox One X that I have, uh, Titanfall 2 for the first time since like that game came out. <laughs> and I played, I played a couple rounds of the multiplayer, and in my second round, I managed to get second place. Like the whole match, I, I couldn't believe it. I was, I was just killing it. I was doing so good, and I was like, "Wow, yeah, I've gotten better at video games. Like, I really feel like I've gotten better at these." You know, practice makes perfect. Then I fired up Battlefront, and I just got demolished so much. I just, I don't know. I, I don't know how much of that is me and how much of that is the game. It's, yeah, it's, it can be hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, it's a combination, but the game itself is not really like jumping out at me as this kind of game that, that casual players are going to hop into and think, wow, Which this is, is weird fun. Because that's kind of how it's <laughs> it's been pitched for so long. Is like, this is kind of the ultimate casual shooter. Like, it's split-screen play. Like, you can play with your family. Like, that, I, it's not supposed to be kind of like an ultra-sweaty, hardcore shooter. Right. That's It feels like that's what it's turned into. Yeah. Well, there's so many heroes running around. That's what I... I mean... Yeah. It, it, and, and, and if you're... Yeah, the pickup system was was definitely more fair. I, the whole thing, you know, it had such promise. I've even heard from, you know, the reviews I've read, and I've only played like an hour and a half of the campaign, but I've heard so many negative things about the campaign also, and that's just really Yeah, I have two, really which is a bummer, since that's like half the reason oh. I was going to pick it up. Yeah. But I'm still going to, just to test out my Xbox One X, but... <laughs> yeah, well, and we've, you know, this is our job. This is our... Oh, also our, that, yes. Our responsibility <laughs> kind to of the happy. masses. To uh, to test this game out and and uh, I mean 
I guess throw fuel on the fire. What can they do? I mean, should should did did they make a mistake in not having just a season pass? Would that have been a better uh, better than this? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because <laughs> like I even, mean, even their lack of season pass thing now is coming back to bite them because it's like, oh yeah, we we don't have a season pass, but the the free heroes we're adding, you have to grind for to unlock. They're not just being added in the game. Yeah. So that's that was cheating. <laughs> Well, and then there's no sense. I mean, without when there's a when a, when a company has a season pass, they basically come out with a, a roadmap and a promise of future content. They say this is what we're going to release. This is when generally when we're going to release it. But now, I mean, is there even any guarantee that that EA will come out with all this extra content? I, I think I think the content will come out, but. Uh, whether they do this or not, like I think the only solution is is kind of a top to bottom teardown of the progression system. I don't think there's any other way. You have to just change it back to the old system, like play as a character, unlock everything, get rid of these the star cards that give crazy boosts. Just do like kind of different pieces of gear that have trade offs, not are just like flat stat boosts. Uh, and then if you want to sell loot boxes, add cosmetic loot boxes in like two months or something. Like yeah. I don't like that's bad because i know they want to make as much money as they can now while the game is launching and hot but like clearly what they're doing now is not <laughs> the ideal scenario here so uh, and and this is so bad like the system is is really that bad where i think only kind of a top to bottom refresh of it is going to fix it no i agree if they're even interested in doing that at all yeah my worry of course is also that ea has just the the, the track record in 2017 is not great the uh the mass effects the last, the, the you know this the Andromeda, the, the lack of uh, DLC for that game, you know that was that was not good. <laughs> you know, I mean that was a that was Just, a real I disappointment. I mean, the, the essential mm-hmm. murder of the entire Mass Effect franchise after being one of their most beloved properties was just astonishing. Frankly, yeah. I mean, like Andromeda wasn't great, but like man. That just blew up. So that was that was, and then yeah, then the visceral stuff. An entire huge game just got cans. Like, and now this. Like I wrote about this. Yeah. It's it's been a crazy year for EA. Well, and something that neither of us have followed closely is the Need for Speed stuff, which is another game. Well, that was that was so bad. It just got demolished yeah. before it even like came out. Essentially, and like no one's even interested enough to care that it's bad, which is also a bad sign. That is you know, here we get to the point where, you know, the, the, the people calling the shots are not showing us that they really care very much about either games or their consumers. And that's a real problem. Uh, you know, I, I understand the suits at a company. They have to have good business sense. They did, and they're not necessarily going to be as, you know, ground level as the developers or the fans. But if they don't understand the basic sense of what what gamers want what gamers will pay for what you know then then there's going to be more studios shut down there's going to be more games that fail there's going to be all this blowback that's really like really bad for the gaming community and really bad for the industry and and then at the same time if this game does sell really well that's also bad i mean we're kind of in a situation that ea has put us in where there's not really a good outcome here Right, I don't like like I don't like rooting for a game to fail. That sucks. Like so many people worked hard on the game, but if like again, if it succeeds, then other people will copy this model and we'll have even more of this on our hands. Right. So it's, and that's going to be bad for games. Kobayashi Maru over here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see a, a a future of video games where you you know I think that this has been more acceptable in Asia and other places. The pay to win 
model. I don't want to see that come to the West. I don't want that to be the status quo in but five I mean, years. There's a limit. Like, yeah, I've paid a bunch of money for microtransactions, but like, even I have a limit. Like, if every game is doing this, <laughs> you not. cannot you <laughs> cannot spend money on all the games. Like, you cannot be a whale in right. all the titles. So people are just going to lose out or just stop playing games. Like, you know, Netflix is ten dollars a month, and <laughs> it's you know. <laughs> Well, it's, it's really unlimited awesome TV at all times. Whereas these games want you to pay, you know, sixty bucks and then eighty bucks a month going forward, like indefinitely. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. It they it, they're they're really treating the consumer as though they're they have unlimited uh, spending money, which is just simply not at all true. Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to find it, but uh, yeah. So this is what this is unfortunate timing for EA. I don't know if you saw this, but it. GamesIndustry.biz, uh, the CFO of EA, uh, they, they have an article about recent comments he made about uncapped monetization. Um, Sounds good. Good start. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he said, um, quote, if you have a live service component to games on EA Access and Origins Access, you can have a subscription that's uncapped. Give people a way to spend money on things they want to do and that they enjoy doing versus simply capping them at $9 or $10 per month. And that's all they can ever spend. We find people p- play twice as many games, they spend twice as long on them, and they spend twice as much money because you've r- reduced the cost of trial to close to zero. So, I mean, basically, this is that idea of recurrent consumer spending, which is just that, like, give consumers the most ways to spend money possible. And, you know, while it sounds fine on the outside, like, give them the ability, give them the choice to spend their money, you know, it's also that these systems are being put in place that incentivize spending money and that close out the, the option to just play the game without spending money. And that's where it becomes really kind of uh, insidious. Yeah, they're just they're going to be chasing FIFA Ultimate Team, which, which makes EA about a billion dollars a year, and they want to find that for every single game now. But yeah. I don't think they can. I don't think every game is designed <laughs> for a monetization system like that. And when it goes poorly, it goes really poorly, as we're, as we're seeing here. <laughs> yeah. And I, I understand, like, you know, the other thing he says in this in his comments are that it provides EA with a more stable business. Like, they don't have to rely just on the release of a, of a new game. You know, in the past, there were, you know, you'd launch a game and that first week or two of sales was like the big deal, right? And so with this, you know, now with we have games like Grand Theft Auto Online where consumers have the ability to spend money over, you know, the course of years – because it's a it's a game as service model, you know that takes that that spike and valley model of earning away, and I understand that that is desirable for businesses. But you know how that's implemented makes such a right. big difference. Well, just taking that statement at face value, you could easily apply that to like, oh, that's what Activision's doing with Overwatch, or that's what they're doing with Destiny, and the, people can spend as much on loot boxes as those games as they want for as long as they want. But the diff- the difference is implementation. Like those are giving out skins and cosmetic ships and sparrows and things, and this is the core gameplay mechanic, and it is yeah. impeding the base game. And if you want it on top of the base game and separated from the base game, that's one thing. But as soon as you start mixing them in a way that you can't unmix, then it blows up like this. Yeah. Well, we'll play more of the game and and. Uh see what we think but uh for now it's just a huge disaster reddit is (laughs) 
Reddit's going crazy. Uh, More so, everything than usual. is it's it's oh such a mess. Um, I mean, from from a sort of from the looking outside in, you know, it's it's almost it's it it brings back Mass Effect three memories for me. So that's you know, there's some nostalgia here going on. Yep, good old. <laughs> Yay, bashing like the old times. <laughs> ah, like the good old days. Yep. Yeah, I know. Maybe they're just trying to get that coveted uh, worst corporation in America title back. <laughs> they they haven't been very evil lately, but here we go. You know. I would say this is just more incompetent <laughs> than evil, but we'll <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, there's some evil mixed in. It's yeah. it's a good balance of evil <laughs> and incompetence. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with more video game controversies or, or maybe just games. We'll see. <laughs> Bye. That's it for this episode of Overworld. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Perez. And I'm Satchel Drakes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please reach us at overworld at podcast1. That's O-N-E dot com. And also you can reach us on Twitter. My handle is at Satchel Drakes. That's Satchel like a bag with an extra L. And mine is Matt Ryan Perez. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey everybody, it's Chad Prather here, the guy that's unapologetically Southern on YouTube. Join me every Thursday for the Chad Prather Show exclusively here on Podcast One. I'm bringing armchair philosophy and observational humor to what's going on in the world as guests help me sort it all out. Nothing is off limits on the Chad Prather Show. Again, every Thursday, it's new episodes of the Chad Prather Show right here on Podcast One. Download and listen to new episodes exclusively on PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Hey guys, Clay Thompson here. I need to give a shout out to my mom. She said I should read the newspaper before games to take my mind off things. It's become a pregame ritual, but it also is how I stay informed. Keeping up on local news, sports, or just about anything, I read the paper. So should you. Whether it's digital or print, it doesn't matter. Go to clayoffer.com and subscribe today. Local news delivered your way, digital or print. Stay informed on news that matters to you. Go to clayoffer.com. Brought to you by the Mercury News, East Bay Times, and Marin Independent Journal. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.